Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Hey, thank you, Bruce. Hey, it's good to see you all here this morning. Yeah, you know... Uh, there are a lot of people that have been looking forward to today uh, because it's the start of uh, the NFL season, right? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And uh, there are going to be hundreds of thousands of people to fill stadiums all over the country, and they're going to stand up and they're going to cheer, and they're going to get really involved and enthusiastic about their favorite team. And, of course, it's the first week of the season, so hope springs eternal until reality sets in. Right? But here's the reality. Every Sunday is game day for us who are followers of Jesus. And there is, uh, I think, no greater joy than to gather together in a community of faith, people who are committed to following Christ and to celebrating uh, God's goodness, celebrating his gift of salvation to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, there is nothing better on a Sunday morning uh, than to gather together like this. So I'm glad you're here. And my prayer is that the Lord would bless you uh, this morning through Scripture, through the songs we sing, through the word that I will proclaim this morning to you. Um, God is good. It was many years ago that Lori and I had enjoyed a great breakfast at one of our favorite restaurants. Um, This is back when... We were living in Southern California, and uh, we had come out of the restaurant. We had run into uh, the father of a, of a friend of ours. In fact, um, he was the father of a woman who had been Lori's roommate uh, prior to, to our getting married, and we had gone to college with her. In fact, I had gone uh, through high school with her. I knew her fairly well. I knew her father He was, um, at that time, uh, a leader in the Christian community. Um, He was a very well-known therapist. He was very good friends with Dr. Dobson and others that ran in those circles. Uh, He was quite an accomplished man and uh, professionally was very highly thought of. His daughter... uh, Kind of following his footsteps, and uh, they worked together for a time uh, in a in a local practice. But then there was a falling out, 
And it was on that morning when we had come out of the restaurant that Lori and I really understood the depth of, of, of that falling out. Uh, when he saw us, he, he said, have you talked to? And he mentioned his daughter's name. And Lori said, well, no, we haven't talked to her in a while. And he said, well, if you do, you ought to tell her that, that she needs to reconcile with her father. And we're like, oh, okay. <clears throat> Isn't that called triangulation? Well, therapeutic term. And uh, he went on to talk about how badly that she had hurt him. And then she said this. Someday she will be looking down into my casket and wishes she had done the right thing. And Lori, in a way that only Lori can do, I believe prompted by the Holy Spirit, looked at him and said, what makes you think it won't be the other way around? Ouch. I want to talk to you this morning about a topic we began last week after we said the Lord's Prayer together, and we're going to continue it on this week. It's about three of the most important words uh, I believe that any of us can, can ever speak to someone else. The words are these. I forgive you. I forgive you. Now, I don't know about you, but as Bruce read the scripture this morning, and we read together uh, the Lord's Prayer, we read in Matthew uh, verses 9 all the way through 15. Again, we, we come to that, to that fifth petition where we say, uh, Lord, forgive us as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Or forgive us as we are forgiving those who sin against us. As we receive the forgiveness of God, we're very quick to dispense that grace and that forgiveness towards those around us who may have offended us. But then it goes on as if Jesus can't just leave well enough alone. Right? And he speaks... Um, Two passages, verses 14 and 15, that I don't know about you, they create a lot of angst when I read them. They create tension in me. He says this, he says, verse 14, For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not, Forgive others their sins. Your Father will not forgive your sins. Does that cause tension for anyone but me? Now, theologically, I have to tell you. Um, I believe in justification by grace. 
I believe that we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, that no one can boast. That, that God's forgiveness is unconditional. It's complete. It's not predicated on if or because. It's in spite of what I do or I don't do. But I can't take credit for my salvation. I can't say, look at me. Look what a squared away person I am spiritually. God must just think I'm a superstar and I'm so worthy of His forgiveness. Because then we get into a place where we are talking about self-righteousness and earning our salvation. And my understanding of Scripture is we can't earn it. It's God's free gift. So what do I do with this passage? Is this passage telling me that unless I forgive someone who's hurt me or offended me or done me wrong, if I don't forgive them, that I can't expect God to forgive me? Is that what it's saying? I had a seminary professor, Lincoln Hurst, at Fuller Seminary. And uh, I had the book of Hebrews, which, by the way, is one of my favorite books in, in, uh, in Scripture. And it's because of him. I mean, he made it come alive, and wow, it was just great. In fact, I remember Dr. Hurst. Um, I called him a, he's kind of like the Einstein of theology, in, at least in appearance. Um, one day I invited Lori to come to class with me. That was allowed at Fuller. You could have a spouse come and sit in with you in class if you chose. And so I invited Lori to come, and, and uh, there was this man. He was disheveled and unkept and hadn't shaven, and his clothes, well, it, I mean, it looked like he'd been dumpster diving, truly. And uh, Lori goes, who is that guy over there? There's a homeless man that's wandered into class. I said, oh, Lori, he's not homeless. That's, that's Dr. Hurst. <laughs> he was just like, I mean, he was just totally into Scripture and everything else I think was kind of not important to him. But I remember something he shared with us in the class because you know in the book of Hebrews there are some difficult passages um, that deal with the question is, can someone... Uh, lose their salvation once it's been given to them by God. Difficult passages that, that cause prompt that question. And I uh, remember students would, would try to, to get Dr. Hurst to kind of commit to, well, what does this actually mean? Can you or can't you? And he'd say, well, this is what I would encourage you. Where Scripture creates a tension, it's because God wants it there. And if God wants it there, it means you better pay attention to why it's creating tension in your life. In other words, he said our, our job as students of Scripture or teachers of God's Word isn't to relieve the tension that Scripture creates it's to help people wrestle with attention in the context in which they find it. So, oh, okay, well, that, that's good stuff. And uh, he said, you know, we look at the book of Hebrews through 2,000 years of, of theology and, and study and doctrine. He says, but I think it does us all well to, to read it the way the recipients read it. 
when they first heard it. And put yourself in their place and ask yourself the question, what might have they been feeling? What, how would have that impacted them? And uh, in other words, he didn't answer the question. He let us wrestle with it. So this morning, what I want to do as we look at this, this difficult passage, this passage that creates a lot of tension in our life, is uh, I'm not trying to, to relieve the tension. I'm going to try to help you understand it perhaps in the context it's in. But where there's tension, you need to wrestle with it. Now, the first question I want to ask you is you don't want to give yourself a pass. You don't want to say, well, God, you can't possibly mean that so that you can go ahead and have an attitude of unforgiveness. Because if that's your attitude, or if you want the tension gone so that you can continue to live in a state of not wanting to forgive somebody, or a constant state uh, of digging your heels in and resisting the Holy Spirit's movement and nudge to you to want to forgive someone, then I would say that tension's there for you. Soak it all in. Because that's not where God wants to leave you. God wants to move you to a different spot. Okay? But as I look at this passage in the context of, of what Jesus is talking about, it's Matthew 5 through 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon in which Jesus is teaching about kingdom values, kingdom ethics, about what it means to share life in the kingdom of God. He's talking about something that is already, but not quite yet, fully experienced and made manifest, but will someday. And as he's talking about it, you're going to notice this isn't the only passage that creates tension. In fact, as you read on into Matthew 7, it talks about judging others. Matthew 7, 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured against you. Oh, wow, that creates tension, doesn't it? And then you get into four specific passages. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 7, you have the, the narrow and the wide gate. Small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Then you get into chapter 7, verse 15, true and false prophets. And there's two trees. One tree bears fruit. The other tree doesn't bear fruit. He says if the tree doesn't bear fruit, it's cut off and thrown into the fire. That only good trees bear good fruit. Ooh, ouch. What kind of fruit am I bearing then you get into true and false disciples. Not everyone, verse 21 says, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see? And then finally, chapter 7, verse 24, four warnings within these four separate sections. This is the fourth warning the wise and the foolish builder. The wise builder builds their house on a rock. The storm comes, the wind blows, and their house stands. But the foolish builder builds their house on the sand. When the wind comes, the storm blows, the house washes away. And then Jesus says this,
And so it will be with everyone who hears this word of mine, right? And so, when we think about forgiveness, when we think about the wide road, the narrow road, we think about good fruit, bad fruit, we think about true teachers, false teachers, we think about wise builders and foolish builders. They all have one thing in common, which is, I think, what Jesus is driving at in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a major theme. You can write this down, and I think you'll agree. It's that those, those who are His followers, those who inherit His kingdom, they have all, they all have something in common, and the something in common is this. They do the will of the Father. Now, it was no exception with Jesus. Jesus said, I've come to do the will of the one who sent me. And so it follows that all those who follow Jesus do the same. That we are called as citizens of heaven to do the will of the Father. To follow the example of the Son. And so here is the real thing we should be looking at. Or the real question we should be asking. Is forgiving others the will of the Father? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. And so as a follower of Jesus, my desire should be to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father clearly is that we forgive one another. That we forgive one another. That's, that's hard work. And I would argue we can't do that in our own strength, and our own power, and our own ability. Because frankly, there are times I just don't want to forgive at all. Right? I've been hurt by someone. I want to hurt them back because for a moment it kind of feels good. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? And yet as those who are Christ's followers, those who have been transformed by God through His Holy Spirit, we are called to a different standard. We're called to live in submission to that Spirit so that we might truly do the will of the Father even when we don't feel like it. Three important words. I forgive you. You see, forgiving is love's ultimate power. Did you know that? Forgiving is love's ultimate power. Tobin, that's the first point. There you go. Forgiving is love's ultimate power. God is love. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. For God so loved the world that He gave. God demonstrates His love in this, that, what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love is central to the character and nature of God. Forgiving is love's ultimate power. through the forgiveness that God offers on the cross. 
sin and death are defeated. Because love. Forgiveness is love's ultimate power. Look at Psalm 132 through 4. As we read through the Old Testament, we see several verses that talk about God's love and how that's expressed in His mercy and His forgiveness. Lord, hear my voice, Psalm 132, verses 4 begins. Let your ears be attentive for my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, keep a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Then you read on. Psalm 103, verses 8 and 11 and 12. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. And then you get into Isaiah 1.8. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And so we, as we follow Jesus, follow the one who came to do the will of the Father, we do the will of God. And the will of God includes three important words. I forgive you. I forgive you. Forgiving is love's ultimate power. God demonstrates and models that for us. But here's the second point. Forgiveness is not optional. It's not an option. Our fellowship with God requires it and depends on it. And I would add, not only our fellowship with God, but, but our fellowship with God in a community of believers, of Christ's followers, depends on it. That it's central to prayer and to community. Forgiveness isn't an option. Ephesians 4, 32 says this, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. When you feel like it. If the other person deserves it. Only after they've received their just rewards. Forgive one another, but do it conditionally when you feel that they've paid for their transgression. Then, then you forgive them. Is that what it says? It says, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Just as in Christ God forgave you. We read that. We hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, verses 14 through 15. 
We feel that tension, especially as it relates to those who have hurt us or injured us. Or, And I'm not pretending that some of you here have not been hurt badly by other people or by institutions, maybe by the church. And yet God's call is that of forgiveness. Not just for the sake of the person who has wounded you, but for the sake of yourself, for your own sake. So what are some of the reasons why people don't forgive? What are some of the reasons? Well, I wrote some of them down. Number one, if I forgive, it will excuse what happened. And I don't want to excuse or condone what happened, so I won't forgive. That, that's kind of the logic that follows. But believe me, forgiving does not excuse what happened. Oftentimes, in the process of forgiveness and in opportunities when the other person is working through that with you, it hardly does excuse it. it really brings it to the forefront and causes people to want to own it and have to deal with it and take it to the Lord. Number two, I'll forgive when they apologize. Well, you know what? Some of us are going to be waiting a long time. It is possible to forgive whether or not the other person apologizes because if it's not, then we're held in bondage. And our well-being is tied to what they do or don't do. And that leaves us a victim. And that's not where God wants us to live or be. It is possible to forgive even when the other person hasn't apologized. Or how about this one? The person doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Well, see, that's an argument of justice. That's saying, I want justice. But listen. Don't confuse justice with healing. Justice is an issue of justice. But if you're waiting to forgive someone until they deserve it, then your own healing is at stake and at risk. I would say it's possible to forgive people whether they deserve it or not. And when you do that, there's a several ways to look at it. One is that forgiveness is a gift. It's a gift you're giving someone. You're right, they don't deserve it. They didn't earn it. They may not be worthy of it, but you're giving it to them as a gift. For the free gift of God is what? Salvation through Christ Jesus. That's kind of doing the will of the Father. It's following His example. It's, it's forgiving one another just as God in Christ is forgiving us. So I'm giving this as a gift to them. Or maybe I'm giving it as a gift to God. It's an act. I'm, I'm, I'm submitting to the Holy Spirit and, and as an act of obedience and in His strength. Lord, I'm doing this for You because I love You. And then finally, I'm doing it as a gift to myself. 
as a gift to myself. Releasing myself from the offense or from the person who offended me. The next one is forgiving means letting them back in my life. Doesn't have to mean that. We can forgive somebody. It doesn't mean we go on the way it always has been. We can create boundaries. We can demand respect. There's all kinds of things we can do, but forgiving doesn't necessarily mean having to let a person who has harmed you back in your life. If it's not safe, if they're not safe. I won't forgive them until they change. Oh, well, you're going to be waiting a long time for a lot of people. Right? I can't forgive them because I can't forget. You've heard the expression, forgive and forget. Now, Scripture says, uh, God says, I'll I'll, I'll wash away your sins and I'll remember them no more. Well, God is all-knowing. Right? And how God how can God not remember something that happened if he's all knowing? Well, here's what I would say. It's not that God literally forgets, God chooses not to remember. And we can do the same thing. Forgiving doesn't mean having to forget, but it does involve choosing not to remember. You see the difference? Choosing not to remember. I can't forgive because they are no longer present. And finally, I just don't want to forgive them. That's pretty honest, huh? And sometimes forgiveness begins with the honesty of, Lord, I don't want to forgive them. But I know you want me to. And I want to do your will because I love you. And I know how much you've forgiven me. I don't forget my offense or my offenses towards other and even to you, Lord. And so sometimes it begins with a prayer of God, give me a heart. Help me do what I can't do, what I'm struggling to do, or Lord, right now what I don't even want to do. God has broad shoulders. He hears that prayer. And he wants to empower you to do what you can't do. So, forgiving is love's ultimate power. Forgiveness is not optional. Our fellowship with God requires it and depends upon it. But the next point is, forgiveness is not a method to be learned, but a truth to be lived. Forgiveness is not a method to be learned, it's a truth. To be lived. I'm going to read you this quote from Nancy DeMoss. The prevailing mindset in our culture today, and I would add our churches, often leaves us permission to be coddled, even empowered in our resentment, in broken relationships, in unresolved conflicts. Well-meaning friends sometimes come alongside us, supporting our stubborn determination to exact from those who have sinned against us sympathizing with our self-pity. Sympathy can provide temporary relief, but nothing short of forgiveness can procure lasting relief. Believe me, 
when you come alongside a loved one or a friend and you validate self-pity or you validate a desire for revenge or you validate their resentment or you validate their bitterness that comes from unforgiveness, you are empowering and enabling them not to do the will of the Father. And God would not have you do that as a friend. Rather, God would have you walk alongside of them and encouraging them in doing the will of the Father in the hard work of forgiveness. That's what He calls us to do. Otherwise, we are aiding and abating, aiding and abetting the enemy. Because the devil walks in the footsteps of unforgiveness. Every time. Every time. And finally, freedom is forgiving. Excuse me, uh, forgiving is freedom. Forgiving is freedom. There is a release. There is a freedom that comes by letting go. James 2, verses 11 through 13 says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. The law that gives freedom is the law of love. The law of perfect love. The law in which Jesus fulfills and the law in which He reminds Himself when He says, Love the Lord your God without your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's the law of love that's the perfect law. It's the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you ever want to see where justice and judgment, perfect judgment, and mercy intersect, it's at the center of the cross. It's at the center of the cross. Lewis Smedes, a seminary professor of mine at Fuller, said this, No one can make you forgive. Only a free person can choose to live an uneven score. Only free people can choose to start over with someone who has hurt them. Only a free person can live with accounts unsettled. Only a free person can heal the memory of hurt and hate. When you forgive another person, you are surprised at your own freedom to do what you did. And then finally, John 8, 36. This passage is talking about slavery and bondage to sin. Okay? In all its forms, in all its expressions. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You will be free indeed. And so, we come back to Matthew 6, verses 14 through 15. Do you feel the tension? I do. 
But when I take it in the context of all that Jesus is teaching, it's about one thing, doing the will of the Father. Even as Jesus says, I've come to do the will of the one who sent me. And I want to do the will of the Father. But I desperately need his help to do it. I was looking for a definitive answer. I've studied harder and looked at this passage longer than perhaps uh, most of what I've taught, not only here in this church, but in my career as a pastor, because there's a lot of tension it creates in my life. And somehow I, I want permission to get off the hook, even if that's not God's intention. And so I was reading a blog with uh, Pastor John Piper, and he had someone that wrote and asked the question about, wow, I'm reading this passage, and does that mean if I don't forgive everyone perfectly, if I, if I, if I go back in my life and there's so many I'm still resident, that, that, that God's not going to forgive me? I'm going to spend eternity separated from God in hell? Is that what this is saying? A lot of tension. And I found this answer from John Piper. It's concise and it's perhaps one of the best answers I've, I've read. Understandably anyway, without having to be a theologian. Without parsing verbs. And, right? This is what he says in answer to that question. The young man that asked the question. He says, if the forgiveness that we received at the cost of the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ is so ineffective in our hearts that we are bent on holding unforgiveness, grudges, and bitterness against someone. We are not saved. We don't cherish this forgiveness. We don't trust in this forgiveness. We don't embrace and treasure this forgiveness. We are hypocrites. We are just mouthing. We haven't ever felt the piercing, joyful wonder that God paid with the life of His Son. Struggling to forgive is not what destroys us. As long as we are in the flesh, we will do our good deeds imperfectly, including forgiving and loving others. Jesus died to cover those imperfections. What destroys us is the settled position that we are not going to forgive and we have no intention to forgive and we intend to, cher to cherish the grudge and fondle the wrong that someone did to me and feel and live in bitterness and resentment. So says John Piper. Jesus says, If you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive your sins. God, our prayer today is that as we live in this tension, we might feel some relief by our commitment to do your will. Help us, Lord, to be better at saying three very important words. Words that are a gift to others. Words that are a gift to you. 
in words ultimately that are a gift to ourselves. I forgive you. I forgive you. Amen.